This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. sermon-starting joke, um, I'd try something else, and I, I've, I've never done this, uh, and especially in front of this many people. I'm going to try a magic trick, right. I'm going to try a magic trick. Now, the point of this magic trick is to make this quarter disappear, right? Um, I'm a little nervous, right? Uh, I've, I've never done magic, in fr- and we got some like front row people up here who are watching close. Right, so if I butcher it, then I butcher it, right? But if it works, then it works. So I got this quarter. It's a real quarter. Um, the point is to make the quarter disappear. For some of y'all in the back, this should be pretty easy to fool you. Um, but the point is to make it disappear. And so the idea is that I rub this quarter into my elbow, and eventually, uh, well, it disappears, right? So let me try again. Let me try again. Uh, should we? So, try again. <clears throat> Good All right, last try. Third time's a charm, right? Ready? Here we go. And there it goes. Did, did you figure it out? Just, no? Uh, yeah. Um, so, there you go. I did magic. My stomach's a little calmer now. Um, So, you know, the the magic, it takes great concentration. I've never done it in front of a crowd this size before. But right before your eyes, the quarter vanished. Right Right before your eyes, that quarter vanished. Um, And now, if if I did the trick well, right, at a minimum, uh, you should be curious. Like, where'd the quarter go? Right? You should be thinking that. How did he do that? How did he pull that off? Was it really a real quarter? Right? Some of you might be asking that. What just happened? And you know what? That's how magic is supposed to work. Now, if that quarter appears all of a sudden uh, in a few moments, um, uh, yeah. So magic, it's meant to sort of tease your mind, right? It's meant to mystify. And and magic, in, in large part, is about the art of distraction, right? It's about the art of distraction. Sleight of hand. The the magician is supposed to distract you. And I'll bet that most of you are unaware that magicians, they actually have this theory. It's called the ham sandwich theory. Has anybody ever heard of this? The ham sandwich theory. And so this is explained by this magician named Henning Nelms. And he says, no matter how astonishing a trick may be, It suffers from one major fault, or it can suffer from one major fault. It has no point. He says, suppose you could work miracles. Suppose that without coming near me, you simply gestured toward my pocket and told me to put my hand in it. I did so and took out a ham sandwich. He says, this would no doubt amaze me. 
But after I'd recovered from my surprise a few moments later, my only feeling would be, so what? But suppose, he says, I say, I'm hungry. And you reply, I can fix that. Look in your left pocket. And when I do so, I find a ham sandwich. He says, that has a point. It makes sense. You can add meaning to your conjuring. So the point is this, is that a magic trick by itself, right, it lacks meaning. A magic trick without context is, is kind of meaningless. The quarter trick is kind of meaningless. A magic trick uh, without meaning causes one pretty quickly to lose their appreciation for the magic trick. And here's where I use that analogy of sorts to say to y'all this morning, scripture isn't magic. Scripture isn't magic. Scripture isn't magical. And we shouldn't be people who treat scripture as magic or treat scripture as magical because, you know what, when we do that, it distracts us from what's really going on in Scripture, from what Scripture's really supposed to do. Here's the thing, though. Many treat Scripture as if it is magical. And one of the chief ways that they do this is to act as if it's full of hundreds or even thousands of predictions that were in the past predicted and then came true like thousands of years later. I want to suggest to you this morning that that's a distraction. A distraction from what's actually going on in the original context of those so-called predictive passages. And so, in fact, I see it as rather problematic. It's not how scripture was written. It wasn't how scripture was first understood by those who first engaged it. And uh, it's, it's not how it was meant to be engaged. When we treat scripture as a sort of magic prediction fulfillment kind of thing magic prediction fulfillment kind of trick, we're treating it in a way that it was never asking to be treated. And unfortunately, this happens very often at Christmas time. This is one of the, the chief times that people take passages from the Old Testament in particular, the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And they treat them, you know, as if they're written thousands of years uh, in advance as what we would call messianic prophecy. Has anybody ever heard that term, messianic prophecy? Yes. So there's this Old Testament scholar named Douglas Stewart, whom I agree with. He says, less than 1%, less than 1% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Right? And we're led to believe that it's actually much higher than that. But I agree with him on that. I, I get the appeal of that. Uh, to be sure, I used to think this way, that there were thousands, perhaps, of predictions in the Old Testament that came true in the New, to be sure there is some looking ahead in the Old Testament, about uh, less than 1%. But another, perhaps even better way to say it, is that the Old Testament is very anticipatory. I think that's a healthier way to think of it, that the Old Testament is very anticipatory. Um, it's, it's not really predictive so much. It's anticipatory. Now, for some of you, uh, hearing this may be a game changer, right? For some, it might even feel like a loss. For some, it might feel like a big problem. But I want to encourage you to think through it with me this morning. I want to encourage you to think of it this way. It's not a problem. It's not a loss. It's a responsible way, rather, to engage and handle Scripture. 
And it's a major gain, right? Because now we're treating Scripture on its terms, not on our terms. Not with pre-made frameworks to force upon it. And when we're doing this, it's a major step in interpreting Scripture. Taking it on its terms rather than forcing our terms on it. And so, uh, since the start of Advent, we've been in this series titled Vintage Christmas. And as most of you are aware, the point is to recover uh, elements of the original Christmas story so that we can get the story right. And we've been doing that since the start of Advent. But once we do this, once we recover the original Christmas story, we can maintain it. We can take care of it. So we've considered the birth date of Jesus. We've considered the birth place of Jesus. We've considered the Magi. We've considered Santa. We've considered Xmas. And today, we're going to consider what I'll refer to as Christmas prophecy. And part of my point is that there are numerous passages from the Old Testament that have been very misunderstood and, in a sense, hijacked, really, truly hijacked. So this morning, we're going to consider some of those, and in particular, uh, the well-known passage from Isaiah 7, which says, she will give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. You all have heard that numerous times. And there's also one in Micah 5 that says, but you, O Bethlehem, from you uh, will come for me a future ruler of Israel. So we'll get to hear more about those in a moment uh, without ignoring their context and treated, and without treating them like they're magic or magical. And here, here's what I got to say this morning, or I should say too, that the term prophecy, uh, prophecy has, in my view, uh, been another word that's been treated magically. But prophecy isn't magic. Prophecy isn't magic either. It's just not. And once we grasp that, once we grasp what it indeed is, then we'll be better off for it. We'll have a richer understanding and engagement with Scripture. So I want to consider that too. So let me reiterate this one more time. Scripture's not magic. Scripture's not magic. Scripture is sacred. Scripture's not magic, Scripture is sacred. And here's a key point, too, that I need to make. In Scripture, prophecy is less about foretelling and more about forth-telling. That's a really, really significant and important distinction. It's less about foretelling and more about forth-telling. And in the next few moments together, we're going to consider how to both recover uh, and read the prophetic portions of Scripture. We'll relate uh, that in a few moments. Uh, we'll relate that to the Christmas story. But we're going to consider a few things just before that. Um, so I think a great place to start uh, is by taking note of what prophecy was to the writers of Scripture. Right? That's the best place to start, to get an understanding of what prophecy was. They were the ones who determined uh, how it was supposed to function, what it was, and their, how their contemporaries were supposed to understand it. And so we're going to look at a few key passages. First, let's look at Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. It says this, But the prophet who presumes to say something in my name, which I have not commanded him to say, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may be privately wondering, how are we to tell that a prophecy doesn't come from Yahweh, from God? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh and the word doesn't happen, and the word has not come to pass, then it's not been said by Yahweh. 
The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You have nothing to fear from him. So there are a few things that we can take from this. One is that a prophecy uh, is a word spoken only in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God. That's a true prophecy. It's a word, two, commanded by Yahweh. Three, there are ramifications for, for speaking prophetically. Four, some prophetic words are not from God. They're sort of pseudo-prophecies, false prophecies. They're empty, therefore, and they're to be ignored. They carry no weight. And fifth, the content of a prophetic word needs to happen. It needs to come to pass. Now, there's something I want to draw your attention to here. Note that the prophetic uh, word is not looking far into the future, not off into the distant future. Because as the last line says, and as you can see here, if it doesn't come to pass among those who heard it, right, that's not distant future. If it doesn't come to pass among those who heard it and to whom it was spoken, not someone to whom it was uh, dressed off in far off times, then there's no point in it. We need not consider it. In other words, these sorts of prophetic words were either blessings or warnings for actions taken in the present and in the immediate or near future. Right? They were effectual for those who were spoken or given to. So keep that in mind because it's really important. We're going to look at another one here. 2 Kings 17.13. Look at this. It says, and yet through all the prophets and the seers, Yahweh had given Israel and Judah this warning. Turn from your wicked ways and keep my commandments and my laws in accordance with the entire law, which I laid down for your fathers and delivered to them through my servants, the prophets. Now, this goes really, really well with the previous guidelines for prophets. It reiterates the last point that I was making. A prophetic word had to do with warnings and blessings. This is super significant. Warnings uh, not to turn from God's laws and the promise of blessing if the law was followed. Another word for law is covenant. Who's heard the word covenant before? Hopefully all of you. That's just another word for the law here. Uh, there are two different words, but we talk about the Mosaic Law or the Mosaic Covenant interchangeably. And that's what this is talking about, this covenant between God and Moses. So the prophets, right, they were figures in Israel's history and tradition who called Israelites to covenant obedience, to obey the covenant, to obey the law. It was a conditioned call. That's also really important because a conditioned call... It's sort of an if-then thing. So it's a warning it's gonna, that's going to result in a blessing if you do this, right? Or divine judgment if you do this. It's conditioned. Right? God can go either way based on our behavior. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you're not, you'll endure divine punishment. And we see a great example of this in the book of Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah, right? A, a prophet, he's called to deliver this prophetic word to the Ninevites, uh, a call to the Ninevites to repent and uh, participate in covenant obedience, and it's a conditional warning. If they obey, God's blessing. If they disobey, divine punishment, wrath. Right, And so here are a few verses from that story. And I want you to notice how God changes his mind here. 
He, he relents, the, the text says, after the prophet's word is spoken and the Ninevites obey, obey. It says, the word of Yahweh was addressed to Jonah a second time. Up, he said, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it as I shall tell you. God saw their efforts to renounce their evil ways, that is the Ninevites, and God relented about the disaster which he had threatened to bring on them and didn't bring it. As you can see, right, this Old Testament prophecy wasn't really about prediction fulfillment. That's not what was going on. Many of the prophetic words were conditional like this, right? God could change his reaction based upon the human response. Prophecy was a call to covenant obedience. So if you force scripture into this sort of predict fulfill model, you start to create hermeneutical or interpretive problems. If we use that predict fulfill framework, the prophetic word in Jeremiah 26, 7 to 9, for example, it doesn't get fulfilled. So what do we do with that? The prophet Jeremiah speaks a word. We know that he spoke of God, but it never comes to pass if we're using a predict fulfill model. So do we just stop trusting scripture? No. We understand rightly and correctly how to engage prophecy, right? Uh, and so if you understand this uh, passage in Jeremiah 27 as a conditional statement, there's really no problems that arise, right? Because God uh, can react based on how humans act. Um, I want us to consider another one, Isaiah 20. It's a little, the font's a little small up here, but look at what it says. At that time, Yahweh spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos, and said, Go, this is a really fascinating uh, sort of prophetic word here. He says, Go, undo the sackcloth around your waist and take the sandals off your feet and watch what happens. And he did so. And he walked about naked and barefoot. And Yahweh then said, as my servant Isaiah has been walking around naked and barefoot for the last three years as a sign important for Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, their butts bared to the shame of Egypt. And I point this out because here we have a prophetic word that was literally acted out. We call this a speech act, right? And for three years, this prophet is walking around, um, and he's, he's attempting to get people to repent, and he's putting this on display. He's performing this call to covenant obedience. And in this case, he's doing it every day, daily, for three years. Right? A prophet was there for the present, the, the here and now, the daily. It was a daily call to covenant obedience. That's what prophecy is. A daily call to covenant obedience. We find a very similar kind of story in Acts 21. Look at this one. When we, uh, when we had been there for several days, a prophet called Agabus arrived from Judea. He came up to us. Watch. Watch this. He took Paul's belt and he tied it around his own hands, feet and hands. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. The man to whom the girdle belongs, the belt belongs, will be tied up like this by the Jews in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. Now, this is looking to the future, but it's the very, 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 very near future. 
We read just a few verses later in verse 27, one week later, that very thing happened that Agabus said was going to happen. So this is much uh, less like foretelling and more like forecasting. This is like forecasting. And even more, as I said before, forth-telling. Forth-telling is telling the truth. Forth. Right? Putting the truth forward. Putting forth the truth. The true call to covenant obedience. And it wasn't difficult. right? It wasn't difficult to discern that Paul's preaching might land him in hot water. If you've read any of Paul's stuff, you know that this is very common. That wasn't hard to forecast that this might happen as Paul goes into Jerusalem where tensions are already running high among the religious officials. Right? In this scene, Paul remained obedient. We see some more things happening in the ministry of Jesus. He's not necessarily predicting, for instance, what will happen when he himself goes into Jerusalem to be crucified. He's not really predicting that. And some of our subtitles in our Bibles errantly put that in there. Jesus predicts his crucifixion. It's really more like Jesus forecasts his crucifixion. Everyone, including Jesus, knew the protocol for a Roman crucifixion. There was nothing really to be predicting. Jesus knew the protocol for a Roman crucifixion. It's not different than me today, for example, predicting what the shape of next Sunday in this very place will look like. I can predict that this morning and make it come to pass. Right? We, we have rhythms and routines and protocols here for what we do on Sunday morning and follow sort of a very typical schedule. I can forecast what's going to happen. And part of what this means is that we still have prophecy today. Not really predicting, but calling people to covenant obedience. And that's what I want to do in large part up here on Sunday mornings. I want to call you into covenant obedience, to be faithful to this new covenant that Christ has made with you. And that, that's not predictive uh, preaching. That's forth-telling. And as such, it's right in line with the prophets of Scripture. And, and so when the Gospels, when they say something like, thus it was fulfilled uh, in your hearing today what was said in the prophets, well, what do we do with that? So now, right, we're inching right up to prophecy and its relation to the Christmas story. But contrary to popular understanding, that isn't advancing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they aren't advancing this sort of predict-fulfill model. That's not what's happening. So I want to suggest to you this morning that we need to take this word fulfill, F-U-L-F-I-L-L. Is that up here? I want to suggest that we take that word fulfill, right, and flip it. Right? We're going to create a neologism. That might be a new word. That's our word of the week, by the way, neologism. Everybody say that with me neologism. A neologism is just a new word. It's a coined word. A neologism. Right? And so in our neologism this week, our word of the week is not fulfill, but fillful. Fillful. Right? So we're going to take that word fulfill and just flip it. Fillful. Right? That's our neologism for this morning. And that. That is at the essence. That is at the heart of what the prophets were doing. They were fillfulling. Right? Really, really important. Not predict, fulfill, but prophetically proclaim the call to covenant obedience and fillful. 
That's what they were doing. Filthful. And what they were, what that means is that they were in that moment of preaching and the call to covenant obedience, they were filling full the moment with greater meaning. That's what the prophets were doing. Filling up the moment with meaning. Charging it up with meaning, as it were. And so this, this past week, um, I don't know if you had the, the, the great opportunity to listen to the impeachment hearings. Oh, boy, that was fun, except the opposite. Um, so as a, a student, as a student and teacher of rhetoric, I was, I was kind of interested in, in how that, but my goodness, all the rhetorical grandstanding that was going on with these politicians, it really was kind of like stomach turning to listen to it for a while. And they were just speaking past each other the whole time. Nobody's willing to change their minds. Um, good on Tulsi Gabbard, by the way. I thought, I thought her reaction, if you read about that or heard about that, was, was a good one. But I, I, wanna, I bring this up because at one point during this, um, there was this Republican candidate. And he wanted, to, he wanted to sort of be prophetic. He wanted to add some meaning to the, that moment. Right? He wanted to, to add some gravitas, some weight, some importance to the moment. And so what do you think he did? He cited scripture. He cited scripture. And he could right? He could have quoted Plato or Aristotle or George Washington or anybody else, but he quoted scripture. And sadly, he did a really bad job of it. Um, he used it way, way, way out of context. Um, so in his defense of President Trump and in accusing the Democrats, the other side, he said, I just want to take I just want to take a moment and cite Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them, the Democratic Party, the politicians, for they know not what they're doing. Yeah, I'm not making that up. But what was the point of that, right? I mean, he was actually comparing Trump to Jesus. I mean, whoo. But what's the point of that? Again, it's, it's terribly out of context. It's, it's wow. Um, tr no matter if you like Trump, he's, not, he's no Jesus, all right? Um, he, this guy, I said, he, he could have chosen anything to say in the world, but he chose that one verse. Why? Could have said anything. Could have just made something up. Could have just said, you know what, y'all Democrats, y'all don't know nothing. They could have just said that. So, like, why bring scripture into the argument? Well, he knew, as well as we all know, that by citing scripture and wording it the way that scripture does, he was trying to fill full. That's what he was doing. He was trying to fill the moment with extra meaning by giving it nuance, by adding it weight, by adding historical gravitas, right? And when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote the Gospels, they were striving to fill the moment up with meaning. But they were doing so appropriately. They were doing so responsibly and within uh, the contextual tradition of Israelite history, right? And so they, what they were doing was using this, this sacred story, these sacred and familiar words, these sacred moments and events and images and speeches from Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, and using them to speak about Jesus so that that moment would take on greater meaning, so that Jesus' story would take on 
greater meaning, that it would level up the story, so to speak. And so this should bear on how we understand some of the Old Testament prophecies in relation to Jesus. They're not really predicting him. Are they anticipating a Messiah? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Predicting Jesus specifically? No. One of the most common is Isaiah 7. You can see it here, 714, which I spoke of earlier. It says this. The Lord will give you a sign in any case. It is this. The young woman is with child and will give birth to a son whom she will call Emmanuel. This is, of course, cited in Matthew 123. And some would say that Isaiah 714 was predicted and then came true in Matthew 123. As if this were magic. But if we take a step back and we remember a couple of things, one, that prophecy wasn't so much foretelling as forecasting and perhaps forthtelling, um, then that's important. And two, that prophecy was a call to covenant obedience, then that shifts our understanding of what Matthew was doing when he's referencing Isaiah. So Isaiah 7.14 isn't a prediction about Mary and Jesus. Go back and read it. If, if you keep reading that chapter, if you keep reading on in Isaiah 7 into Isaiah 8, by the time you reach 8.3, you find that this is about Ahaz, the prophet Ahaz, and another woman, a prophetess. And they got together and they made a child. So Isaiah 7 is talking about uh, the child that happens in Isaiah 8, Ahaz's child, that the prophetess bears to him. It's not looking thousands of years down the road to Jesus and Mary. It's just not. It's just not. And so, now this is really important, right? I think we have the verse here. No, we'll go to Micah in a second. So, what we have here is a forecasting, right, uh, of the birth of Isaiah's child in light of covenant obedience. And then much, much later, Matthew, when he writes, he, he doesn't read it as a predict, fulfill kind of thing, but he reads it in a much richer way. He fills the moment fuller with meaning of Jesus' birth. He could have just said, you know what, a young woman named Mary is going to bear God's son, or going to call him Emmanuel. That would have been fine. But it wouldn't have been as rich as if he had taken this piece of history, a piece of Israelite tradition, a part of Jewish narrative, and using that language to describe Jesus' birth, charged it up with meaning. By doing that, he filled the moment fuller with meaning, with greater meaning. And so Matthew isn't trying a magic trick here. He's not doing that. What he's doing is what I suggested earlier. He's treating Scripture as sacred. Now, there's a call to obey him, this child king. Another example of this is in Micah 5, 1 to 2. You can see that up here. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the least of the clans of Judah, from you will come for me a future ruler of Israel whose origins go back to the distant past, to the days of old. Hence, Yahweh will abandon them only until she who is in labor gives birth and then those who survive of his race will be reunited to the Israelites. And what's going on in context, right, is that Micah is telling a bunch of people in Judah, one of the Israelite territories, hey, an invasion 
may be on the horizon. An invasion may take place. The Babylonians may come here. They may start war. They may invade. But you've got to hold out hope. You've got to hold out hope that we will, we will see a ruler rise up, and he will protect us. He will be of Israelite pedigree. It's a hope for a ruler, a Messiah. But it's not predicting Jesus. It's not. It's, it's, it's hoping for a Messiah that will come in their immediate context and lead them through this attack from the Babylonians. But Matthew references it. And in Matthew 2.6, he cites it. But not as we're often led to believe, as it's predicted and now fulfilled in Jesus. Nope. Matthew is taking Micah's language and applying it, uh, that, that was applied to the kingdom of Judah, who was under threat from Babylonia, and he's using it to speak to those in his day under corrupt Jewish and Roman rule who are also longing for a Messiah. So that Old Testament passage in Micah is sort of a type that Matthew uses in his preaching, in his writing. He charges up the moment with meaning from the sacred scriptures. Looking back, Judah is this type or prototype for those in Matthew's day, in Matthew's context. And this is how Jesus is to be understood, to now be described in these powerfully sacred terms. Matthew and the other gospel writers are keen on borrowing sacred language and imagery to speak of Jesus and their foretelling. And as we, we head to uh, the close here, what I hope is that you're beginning to see that this way of reading Scripture not only is more responsible, a more responsible way of handling the text, but it's also in a really exciting way. It's very meaningful. It's a move from relying on sort of superficial scriptural statistics that treat scripture like magic to relying on reading each set of verses in the Bible or in scripture in their own context. Reading each prophetic word in its own context, in its wider context. Both of those are very, very healthy practices with regard to reading scripture. So in a sense, uh, we're not really just recovering a couple Christmas prophecies today, we're also recovering a more responsible way to understand prophecy and scriptural prophecy. And I got to admit this this morning, when, when I started thinking about scripture like this and thinking about having to let go of that sort of magical view that I used to subscribe to, that I used to cling to, that I was clutched to, uh, I resisted it. I really, really resisted it. But once I did, what happened for me is that Scripture opened much, much, much wider for me. It took on a greater meaning for me. It deepened my own reading. It deepened my own research. It deepened my own devotion and my own commitment and gave me lots more respect for sacred Scripture. And in fact, I actually started looking at Scripture as sacred and treating it as sacred. And I realized along the way that treating scripture like magic is really a setup. It's a setup to abandon scripture once that magic loses its appeal and wears off. We don't have to go through that. Instead, scripture, scripture can remain a place of meaning for us, 
where our devotion increases and our appreciation deepens and the prophetic call to covenant obedience resides deep within us. Right? It's the stories in Scripture that shape us, that shape our thinking and our speaking and our feeling and our reacting. And so this morning, I think it's important to treat Scripture like that, right? So we can sort of go to it and open it, and it becomes important for us and takes on new meaning. Why the ornament? Where'd that quarter go? There it is. When we treat scripture like that, that's where the magic happens. Amen. Let's stand together and receive the benediction this morning. Remember, after we do the benediction, uh, Pastor Rick Power is going to come up and speak. So just uh, grab your seat for another couple minutes. But if you would, receive, uh, uh, stand in a posture of uh, openness, as if you're receiving a gift as you receive this benediction. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he let his face shine upon you. May he show his face to you this morning.